that received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, uh, I hope you know who it is that wrote it, and I hope you know who it is that received it, and I hope you know his purpose. His purpose is to establish a church, a people, a, a group of people who uh, have entered into this, uh, this thing called grace, and now um, uh, he, he writes to make sure that they sink roots deep down into a bedrock of faith. So we can move on now as Paul continues to, um, to introduce himself to a group of people that had never met him. Paul, as I said last week, had never been to Rome, and uh, so now he's introducing himself to people that had never met him. And you will notice um, the term that he uses, which I, I, I mentioned um, oh, a couple of weeks ago from the pulpit on Sunday morning. This is how Paul wants to be known. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I mentioned that you perhaps you remember um, David introduces himself like that. Joshua describes Moses like that. That uh, in, in, the, in the eyes of those who really seem to have a, a grasp of... Um, a, a, a genuine grasp of holy things, the, the thing that they wanted to be known as is bond slave. Now, now again, there are, and, and by the way, where's Dale tonight? Dale Lively, are you here? Dale, Dale didn't bring me my little board that I could show you Greek words on, but we'll do that next week. But uh, there, are, uh, there are a couple of, um, um, never mind, it's, it's no big deal. There is a word in the Greek language that is, that is uh, translated bondslave. There are other words that are translated servants. Gang, those, in the New Testament, those are two different concepts. Servants are paid. Bondslaves are owned. And, and this is the term here is doulos. It's not uh, a diakonos or oikethis. This is doulos. Paul wants to be known as a bondslave. You remember that, that statement in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, um, you've been bought with the price, you're not your own. That's how Paul wants to be thought of. He is a bondslave, but not just any bondslave. He's a bondslave of Jesus Christ. That is, uh, he is always relating everything that he is and everything that he does and every, every thought that he has, um, all of his morality, it traces itself back uh, to, to Jesus Christ who he is. By the way, this is really kind of off the subject, but let me, um, uh, let, let me just make sure that you understand this little point. Um, I, my wife, uh, uh, I often buy books and get her to review them. Um, um, so before we put them in our bookstore in our libraries, because she likes, she stays up real late at night and reads, and, and I go to bed. But um, she just read one. I mean, perhaps you've heard about it. Uh, the book is entitled "The Case for um, Modesty" or "The Return of Modesty" or something like that by Wendy Shallot. And uh, Wendy Shallot was interviewed on um, a uh, Bruce, uh, a Ken Myers tape, and she's really delightful and brilliant, and and I just thought it was wonderful. But, uh, you know, does anybody in here want to think or think their, their children may need to learn a little bit more about modesty? I mean, is that a problem in your home? At the springtime, you who have daughters, do you go out and buy uh, uh, bathing suits with your girls? Does that ever trouble you to buy a bathing suit for them? We went through that 
three, oh gosh, three straight girls trying to get bathing suits that were decent. Well, Wendy Shallot uh, is, you know, pleading for a return to modesty, and we're all for that, aren't we? I think we are. But, um, gang, I, I, I said, I, I saw the book sitting on the counter, and I said, do you read this? She said, I read it. I said, do you mean put it in the bookstore? And she said, no, no, don't, don't put that in the bookstore. I said, why? I mean, we're all for modesty, aren't we? Don't we like modesty? And she said, yeah, you know, and, and we, we can all get excited about what she's saying over the subject, but the reason she's pleading for modesty is not something that we can live with. I mean, uh, and, and I could tell you more and more, but, but the point is, ladies and gentlemen, all morality must trace itself somehow back to Jesus Christ. Why am I honest? Because my business uh, uh, benefits if I am? Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, that ain't honestly worth a hoot. Uh, I've always I've told you about this thing that I saw in USA Today about I was on the airplane one day and this guy wouldn't let me read his paper. It really made me mad. And um, I had nothing to read, and, and he turned the page, and it had this big old huge thing in the back, and it said, honesty is the best policy. And then out at the bottom it said, it is also the most profitable. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you deal with, uh, with uh, honest businessmen. They're good guys. I mean, I like honesty when I'm buying a car, you know. But if the honesty does not somehow trace itself back, if our morality does not grow out of uh, a relationship to Christ is not, it's not, it's not anything called righteousness, ladies and gentlemen. It's called moralism. Those are two different things. And, and modesty is the same. Why do I want to be modest? You know, uh, because I want to attract a male. Yeah. Modesty is a wonderful thing, but if it can't trace itself back to the hub that is Jesus Christ, then it's uh, modesty for the wrong reasons. Now, I, I said all that to say, Paul is constantly, constantly tracing back everything that he is, everything he says, everything he does, everything he believes, back to Christ. Um, in one stretch of Scripture, the first, I think it's 14 verses of Ephesians 1, he mentions the name of Christ 15 times in 14 verses. And, and I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the older you grow in the Lord, the more you ought to be talking about him. Um, one of the, I think, barometers of your soul is how much you talk about him and how little you talk about you. <laughs> um, we've gotten beyond thinking that anything that we did contributed to our own salvation, haven't we? Well, Paul was overtaken, that not that he was simply a bond slave, but he was a bond slave of Christ's. Um, and, and that should be something that really is appealing to us as well. Um, we belong to Christ. Um, we we uh, owe him our obedience because, ladies and gentlemen, we have been bought with a price. Have you ever heard, have you ever gotten yourself in the discussion of um, um, the lordship of Christ? Have you ever been in one of those discussions where people say, well, you know, you can have Jesus now and, and have him as Savior now and get him as Lord later? You know, I would love, I would just love the opportunity to ask Paul about that. Here Paul is calling himself a bond slave of Jesus. I've been bought with the price. And people say, well, you know, you don't have to really get it. I, I, I think Paul would absolutely roll over in his grave, even at the discussion that people were having about the worship of Jesus. Anyway, uh, the, Paul is overtaken that even his slave, he's a slave, but not any slave. He's a slave to Christ. And then he says, um, 
called to be an apostle. Now, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I'm going to introduce you to three words. Actually, I'm not going to introduce you. I'm sure you know them already. Uh, two sets of three words. That is, three words and then three words, three more words. And, and, and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I wonder if you really want all this stuff. You know, uh, um, he says, call to be an apostle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's a very significant claim. Did you realize that? Do you know the great import behind the term apostle? Um, do you ever read the Saturday paper and open up and see uh, the number of apostles that are out there having churches? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm afraid that's a misuse of the term. Well, let me show you a couple of places. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to Matthew 10. Two texts I want you to see. One's in Matthew and one's in Luke. Um, Matthew 10, verses 1 and 2. Uh, by the way, Paul's claim to apostleship is something that he had to defend throughout his ministry. People were always, um, you stay with Matthew, uh, let, me, I, let me find something real quick. Um, he was always having to say, yeah, oh yes I am, oh yes I am, because it was always, they were always correct. Listen to this. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. Paul, the fact that he was an apostle was always under question. He was always being attacked for his claim of being an apostle. But now, uh, over in Matthew 10, uh, verses 1 and 2. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over uh, clean spirits to cast them out and to heal, etc., etc. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Do you, do you see there are two words there? He called all the disciples to him, and then out of those, he named some apostles. Those are two different things, ladies and gentlemen. And you, must be un, you must be certain that apostles, uh, or uh, aposto no, apostolicity is, um, is a claim that only 14 people can make. Only 14. There were the 12, and then there was the guy that replaced Judas. That's number 13. And then there was Paul. Only 14 of those guys. They're all gone now, ladies and gentlemen. An apostle is somebody that's sent. By the way, let me show you that Luke passage. I didn't want to shortchange you. I mean, I want to give you money's worth there. Um, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it came about in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Call all disciples, and out of that bunch, he named some apostles. Uh, th there is a greater import to the claim of being an apostle as opposed to being a disciple, ladies and gentlemen. And his claim in Romans 1 is, is quite a significant one. Because apostles, ladies and gentlemen, um, were men who were endowed with special authority in the church. By the way, does this ring a bell with anybody? I mean, um, have you ever heard of apostolic succession? <laughs> have you ever been exposed to Roman Catholicism? Do you know what the Pope is, ladies and gentlemen? The, the Pope is in the line of apostolic succession. That means... He traces his heritage all the way back to Peter and is thus considered in Roman Catholic circles a, in, in apostolic succession, which means he's an apostle. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's utterly impossible. 
And let me say why I, I say it's impossible. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 1. You remember Judas has hanged himself, uh, and they got to replace him. Um, and so they, they get a, a group together, and they start choosing, you know, who it is that might uh, replace Judas. And uh, I look at, uh, let's see, verse, uh, let's begin at uh, 21, Acts 1.21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day, he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are, um, there are some criteria by which your claim to apostleship can be measured. And one of those is that you must be a witness of the resurrection, which Paul claimed on numerous occasions. Now, um, you know, nobody else has witnessed that resurrection, ladies and gentlemen. And if that was one of the stipulations for anybody to join the apostolic band, then no more apostles exist. But apostles, ladies and gentlemen, were they were given authority to ordain elders, to put to, um, uh, to authority over the church. But once they all died, ladies and gentlemen, we're left with a bunch of disciples. That's what we are, which is a wonderful calling in itself. But my point simply is, his claim to apostleship is in essence claiming that, ladies and gentlemen, you here in Rome, I know you don't know me, I know you've never seen me, I know you I've never visited Rome, but I am an apostle. And as a result of being an apostle, I have certain rights to, to, to exercise over you as the church there in Rome. That's why it's so important that, you, that uh, his claim to apostleship. And by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there were lots of people claiming to be apostles. Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Um, yeah. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you were an apostle, that gave you certain privileges and certain um, uh, authority that was not shared by the rest of the uh, uh, discipleship band. But, folks... Um, uh, that apostolic, by the way, just, just as an aside, you remember when we were in here several months ago and we were talking about uh, uh, canonicity? Remember that term? Canonicity is um, how the Bible was put together. That is, why did they include uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark and not the Gospel of Thomas? Well, um, gang, <laughs> uh, there was a canonical stipulation of apostolicity. <laughs> You get that? <laughs> there was a canonical stipulation. That is, if it was going to be included in the canon, if it was going to be included in the Bible, it either had to be written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. For instance, Mark's relation, Mark was not an apostle, but his relationship to Peter. And thus, when those guys disappeared, ladies and gentlemen, all that apostolic authority um, is gone. Um, the only authority that any of us have is authority that derives from this book. 
not from my position. You know, um, I'm, an, I'm a Presbyterian, as most of you already know, and I go to these meetings uh, once a year. I didn't go this year, first time I've missed in a long time. And um, um, I, I love the, the debates that we get into. And every year, every year, we want to write a letter to the president. You know, we're going to complain about something. I remember we were complaining about women in combat, and we were complaining about this, that, and the other. And, and, um, and I, I always want to stand up and say something, but nobody's listening to me, and, and rightly so. Um, but, you know, gentlemen, gentlemen, we, we really don't have any authority as a denomination with the President of the United States. We can express our opinion, but, to, but to, the only authority any of us has is authority that springs from our adherence to the precepts contained in this book. But that wasn't true of an apostle. Now, um, then he says, separated to the gospel of God. Um, uh, well, and, and, and later on in other places, he, he tells us when that took, takes place. In fact, I want to read you that text. That's really a neat text. Where is that? Um, he, he talks about from the womb he was, uh, he was separated, Galatians 1, I think. But, um, hold on, let me see if I can find me. Um, uh, no. Yes, there it is. Verse 15, Galatians 1. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. No, Paul was separated from the, from the womb to this job that he's about to begin. Um, it, but you see, ladies and gentlemen, the plan and the purposes of God being unfolded in the life of Paul. And, and I think this is the first time that we will encounter in the book of Romans the whole issue of the sovereignty of God. But there is a plan and a purpose unfolding. Uh, not only unfolding in, in the life of Paul, but unfolding, period. Uh, it won't be the last time we'll run into uh, the sovereignty of God in the book of Romans. But anyway, but then he says, uh, separated to the gospel of God. Now, gang, again, I sit in my office and I wonder, do y'all really want to hear this stuff about accusatives and nominatives and genitives? I don't know. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to you in the early going and then see how many thin out, and then, um, um, then, I'm gonna, and then I won't give you any more of this. But, but in the English language, ladies and gentlemen, we have cases. You know what cases are in the English language. You have nominative, accusative, and genitive. Um, uh, you know, a nominative is a subject. Uh, an accusative is the direct object. And the genitive uh, is, it shows possession or uh, prepositional phrases, that kind of thing. You, you know, you remember any of that? Well, when you come to this, this statement of separated to the gospel of God, there's a couple of ways that you might be tempted to understand it. The gospel of God. Um, for instance, if I said the book of Jimmy, what, am I, what do I mean? Do I mean the book that Jimmy owns? That would be a subject. That would be a um, a subjective genitive. Um, or do I mean that when I say the book of Jimmy, is that the book that describes Jimmy? Is the genitive showing possession or is it showing description? Now, did, that, did, that, did you get that? But, but the point, I think, is a good one, ladies and gentlemen. 
When we talk about the gospel, me and you, we talk about the good news, etc. Well, what in fact is good news? What is the good news that we're so excited about, ladies and gentlemen? Is it forgiveness? No, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad we're all forgiven, but that ain't the good news. Is the good news that, the, that God has given us a, uh, a code by which uh, he would have us live, or, uh, an appeal for good conduct? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. That ain't the good news either. The good news is something that God has done. And, and I, the reason I want you that genitive stuff is this gospel is the gospel of God, not a description about him, but it is his possession. The, the good news is something that God has done. Remember the story in Luke 2 um, when they're doing shepherds, you know, they're, and he said, Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, because unto you is born this day in the city of David. The good news, ladies and gentlemen, is something that God has done. That's what's good news, that God has provided remedy. He has made provision um, for the predicament that sinful men are in. That's why it's the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of forgiveness. It's not the gospel of clean living. It's God's gospel, and it declares something about what God has done. Um, not about what man needs to do, but what God has already done. I did want to draw your attention to this brief little note. Do you notice that in, the, in these first four verses, you find Jesus Christ mentioned twice. You find God mentioned there in, in verse 1. Look in verse 4. Uh, I think it's verse 4, and declare to be the Son of God, the power according to the spirit of holiness. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're Trinitarians. If you're not a Trinitarian, you're not a Christian. We're Trinitarians. Well, um, I, I love to ask people, could you, tell, could you defend the Trinity if you had to? Um, <clears throat> and they kind of stumble around a little bit, and I say, well, tell, tell me this. Um, uh, give me one didactic passage concerning the Trinity anywhere in the Bible. You know what didactic means? It means a teaching passage. Give me one, one passage in the Bible that teaches the Trinity. You'll never find one. But you will find stuff like this everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. The Trinity is, is most often taught indirectly as opposed to directly. And what you find there is the three persons of the Trinity being mentioned, all involved in this great scheme of redemption. It is an indirect. They're all mentioned. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right there. And then verse 2. Boy, we're moving right along. Um, <clears throat> separated for the, uh, to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let's see if we can uh, accomplish that in 10 minutes, and then we'll quit. Um, Paul is giving you more information about this gospel that he's been separated unto. And by the way, some of your translations have verse 2 in parenthesis there. But he, he, the first thing he tells us about this gospel is that it was promised. Where? Where did those promises occur, ladies and gentlemen? They occurred in the Old Testament. You know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of... I was sitting at my desk today thinking, I'm going to mention this man's name, but I'm going to mention his name because... Because he never comes on Wednesday night, and dead gummit, he came tonight. 
can you believe how rude he was uh, to come? Bill Garner Sr. <laughs> Bill Garner Sr. said to me one day, he said, you can find Christ on every page of the Old Testament. What a true truth, ladies and gentlemen. What, you, what Paul is referring to when he talks about this gospel that was promised, it was promised on every page. On every page of the Old Testament. All of it foreshadows and predicts and prepares for some events that had to take place before it was all wrapped up. The only thing new about the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament, is some events that had just recently taken place. But this was a gospel that is found on every page. Every page of the Old Testament. And, and I've got several written down, but I, we don't have time to look at it. But it's the Old Testament that Paul refers to when he talks about being promised. Um, th this, this gospel that he preaches is directly related to the Old Testament. Now, how was it promised, says, the, says verse 2, uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, gang. Here's, here's the other, the third word. Disciples, apostles, and prophets. All three different terms. Um, and and uh, we, we've discussed the other two. The, the prophets, um, um, we don't have time to get to that. But a prophet in the Old Testament were those who uh, predicted or declared the mind of God. All right? Now, gang, here's the other three, uh, other set of three words that you've got to keep clear, okay? Those are three words. Here are three that you've got to get straight. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. <laughs> the, the prophets are those guys to whom truth was revealed. That's what revelation is, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, the... Um, the, the Greek word that is translated revelation in the, in the last book of the Bible is apocalypse. And, and I think when we say revelation, you immediately think of a book. Well, revelation is a process by which God exposed himself, made himself known. He revealed. He gave truths. In fact, the Hebrews 1 says he did it through burning bushes and he did it through this miracle and that prophet and he spoke this way and that way. But that's what prophets were, ladies and gentlemen. They, they, they were in the business of receiving revelation. But that revelation was then reduced to writing. And the process by which the men who wrote it were protected is called inspiration. Now, guys, let me show you a text. If you can hurriedly find Second Peter. <clears throat> this, I think, is the best description of inspiration in the Bible. Second uh, Peter 2, I think. Um, no, Second Peter 1. Um, guys, have you ever been inspired? I mean, um, have you ever... Walked on a beach alongside your wife and the sun sets and you were inspired? Well, I hope so. <laughs> if you're not, you need to come see us. Um, <clears throat> have you, uh, I mean, do you think Handel might have been inspired when he wrote the Messiah? I do. 
Um, I'm telling you, every time I listen to that piece of music, there, there's something goes off in me. Um, I haven't, in, well, never mind. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, the Bible doesn't mean that kind of thing when it talks about inspiration. Here's what it does mean. Read with me verse 19, 2 Peter 1, 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any even private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There, ladies and gentlemen, is a succinct definition of inspiration. Some of your translations, or at least I hope some of your translations, say something like this. But holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Gang, inspiration is the process by which God takes a Paul, he lifts him up using all of his education, all of his experiences as a, as a boy in Tarsus, etc., etc. He lifts him up, asks him to write something, carries him along as he writes, and when he finishes chapter 16, sets him back down. That is inspiration, but that's not to be, con that's not to be confused with revelation. Revelation is just the process of God telling us what he's like, telling us what he demands. He has revealed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's where the rub comes. <clears throat> there is no more none, zero, zilch, none. No more revelation. But what does continue? Inspiration? No, no. Inspiration was the process by which God made sure this book delivered into your hand is trustworthy and reliable. That what you hold, ladies and gentlemen, is the product of men being carried along by the Holy Spirit as they penned it. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, do, do you realize that not everything that Paul penned was inspired? Did you know that there's a third Corinthians? There were three letters of Corinth, and you can find it, in, you can find it referred to in, 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 the, in the second Corinthians. There was an intervening letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's another letter in there. We don't have it. And the reason that we don't have it is because it wasn't inspired. It was not the mind of God to take that letter and carry Paul along as he wrote it. But it was the mind of God to carry him along when he wrote chapter 2. Excuse me, letter, two, letter 3, but 2 Corinthians. Gang, no more revelation. And because there's no more revelation, there's no more need of inspiration. But the thing that continues in the lives of all of us is the sweet ministry of God as he takes this which has been revealed and protected by his inspiration, and he takes it and illumines it to our understanding and application. God the Holy Spirit taking the book that he, that he made sure was reliable and illumining the people of God. Gang, you can, you can save yourself a whole lot of trouble if you can keep that little distinction in your mind. There is no more continuing revelation. But God took prophets. He revealed what he wanted to, do, wanted, wanted to say to the prophets. 
Then as they committed it to writing, he protected them by the Holy Spirit. And then the resident Holy Spirit in all of us takes this book that has already been written and applies it to our understanding and allows us to go live by it, ladies and gentlemen. And that continues in a moment-by-moment process <clears throat> where the Word of God becomes real to us and we try, endeavor, to go live it out, ladies and gentlemen. I hope uh, those, that little distinction will serve you well because illumined, yes. Revealed, no. Everything that's been revealed is right here. But God in His kindness does teach us this book. Before I close in prayer, those of you who have to leave and head to um, choir, feel free to do so. And if you've got a committee meeting that you need to get to, you might want to get onto that too. I tell you, probably uh, what we need to do is reserve the, the, the chairs by the door for those who need to get out. <clears throat> well, it's going to be a big choir. And that's delightful. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Our Father, we are a people who love to think that the Spirit of God will still speak to us through this book. Though we don't maintain a loose-leaf Bible and keep adding pages to it, we do have a book that tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. That the Bible is such a book that has been so protected by your Holy Spirit, and then this same Holy Spirit taking this book and helping us to understand it and to apply it and live by it, oh God, it is a great thing that you have done. Not simply redeeming us in Christ, but now preserving us. Preserving us by the kind, everyday, hour-by-hour work of your Spirit in our lives. Father, uh, of all things we would like to become, it is students of this book. We thank you for going to the extreme of produce or reducing your mind to, to black words on a white page. It is our intention, O oh God, to understand every jot of it. Uh, not simply for intellectual superiority. We are not here to uh, stuff our notebooks with more notes. We are here to discover ethical applications such that we might become different people, more like Jesus Christ. It is our great passion, O oh God, enable us to do so. I thank you for these people who are interested in holy things, and I pray, O oh God, that their appetites will be whetted and whetted and whetted as we come further and further along in the mind of uh, uh, Paul as he expresses what you told him to say. We look forward to that. We uh, do so um, because of the, uh, the new life that we have discovered in Christ. And our intention is to go please him as his bond slaves. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys, and good night, and I hope to see you again next week for verse 3.